This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. During the first Republican presidential candidate debate, Governor Ron DeSantis said he would use U.S. military special forces inside of Mexico to help stem the flow of illegal drugs like fentanyl into the United States. Afterwards, he told Fox News personality Sean Hannity, quote, when I talk about using the military to take on the drug cartels because they're killing tens of thousands of our citizens, we have every right to do it, end quote. While this kind of rhetoric, using the U.S. military in a sovereign foreign nation to combat illicit drug production and distribution might seem shocking, it's not entirely new for a political candidate or even a sitting president to say something along these lines, but rather goes back decades to times during the war on drugs. But times have changed in trying to combat the production and importation of synthetic drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamine is arguably far more difficult than plant-based drugs like cocaine, marijuana, and heroin, and the U.S. relationship with Mexico and the perspective of the Mexican government on the war on drugs have also changed. And according to our guest today, that all makes this kind of rhetoric problematic at the very least. I sat down earlier today with Dr. Rick Coughlin. He's an associate professor of political science at Florida Gulf Coast University who focuses on Mexican politics and culture. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. Coughlin, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Great to be here, Mike. So we've had you on the show about yearly for the past five years to talk about Mexico, its politics, how that all interacts with us here in the United States. Uh, the first two or three years, we talked mostly about the new president and how his policies might change Mexico, things like that. Last year, we talked some about so-called narco-terrorism kind of deeply for the first time. And now this year, there is increasingly talk among people on the political right about using the military to try to stem the flow of drugs into the United States because of our skyrocketing overdose rates. Um, what are your thoughts on this trend, generally speaking, before we kind of unpack it? Well, um, it's rooted in the past. And uh, so that, you know, when then the Cold War ended, the United States kind of shifted its focus from, you know, fighting communist aversion in Latin America to fighting drug trafficking. And this goes back to Ronald Reagan in 1986. And so the United States wants to fight a war on drugs and, uh, and fight the war on drugs uh, through, you know, arming Latin American police forces and, and, and militaries. And, and in terms of the argument that Mexico, for example, is a failed state, uh, uh, the Mexican state is weak, uh, narcos govern large parts of Mexico's uh, national territory, particularly northern Mexico, uh, this is the more recent Republican argument is, oh, this is an intolerable situation for the United States to be bordering on on these sort of uh, northern regions of Mexico that have become, you know, part of this failed state. And uh, so the, the roots of this whole discourse go back decades. And, uh, you know, there have been various sort of, you know, moments when, you know, presidents have considered – uh, using force um, on Mexico. Uh, there was a moment during the Obama administration, uh, another moment during the Trump administration. Um, and so this thing has come back again. Right? Hmm. Um, and it's come back in the form of uh, branding the, the cartels as, as terrorist organizations, which would then um, you know, authorize uh, um, the federal government to, to initiate military actions against the cartels in Mexico. We'll get a little bit more into that, but I just want to, um, if I'm not mistaken, 
a majority of the synthetic drugs that are coming into this country, like fentanyl, which are responsible for most of the overdoses, are coming in at least through Mexico, whether they're manufactured there or not. Is that correct? Yeah, they're coming through Mexico. They're coming through the official ports of entry into the United States, as opposed to there are immigrants that have backpacks, you know, full of drugs and the, the, the undocumented immigrants are, you know, climbing over the wall and uh, and sort of emigrating, you know, into the United States in a undocumented or or illegal manner. Uh, you know, most of the fentanyl that's brought into the United States from Mexico is brought in by Americans who are contracted by the narco trafficking agencies to uh, to bring drugs in because they're less likely to be stopped and searched by the Customs and Border Patrol. Um, and it is obviously a serious situation. We hear a lot of reporting on it, especially on NPR. Um, just to remind listeners, in 2021, about 70,000 Americans died of fentanyl overdoses. Last year, there were 110,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. Most of those were fentanyl-related. So it's a serious problem that's unprecedented, and it's growing. So I just want to make sure that's clear. Um, but, you know, during the first, back to the the rhetoric, and we'll, un, we'll have you just sort of sort out what you think about this rhetoric and these current times. Times. Um, during the Republican presidential candidate debate, there was a question about using military in Mexico um, against the cartels. And Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida said that he would use military on, quote, day one, I think he said, on his first day in office. What are your thoughts on that being used as a political um, idea right now during this time in the world? Well, I mean, it has a lot of support among, you know, Republican primary voters. There's a lot of grief and rage and anger about, you know, the deaths of friends and family members due to fentanyl overdoses. And so, you know, logically, they would want to find somebody to to blame. Um, But, uh, you know, attacking the cartels, I I think. um, Well, first of all, cartels in in quotation marks. Yeah, when I I said it the first time, I did quotes, but as a radio host, I should be clearer (laughs) about that. Explain, you know, the slippery nature of what it means to be a cartel and whether it's something that is addressable directly through a military force or special forces. Yeah, well, I mean, the cartel concept emerged at the end of the 1980s. That's when as as the United States was declaring the the, the war on drugs, right? The the, the notion of, of drug cartels uh, begins to emerge. But historically, uh, in Mexico, going back to the 1970s, the Mexican uh, federal police uh, essentially took over narco trafficking. You know, appointed their own narco traffickers. Right? They went through the existing traffickers and. Uh, killed some, uh, incarcerated others, and then uh, selected others to to traffic drugs, and then to uh, and then to pay them um, for uh, for for the for the use of plazas uh, for for the use of sort of the the, the spaces in which they could uh, engage in narco trafficking, uh, and and so the, you know the the narcos were an extension of the state; they were an extension of the security apparatus but the cartel concept suggests that the, you know the narcos are these independent autonomous uh, criminal organizations which historically they simply haven't been
You sent me an op-ed where you say, um, I think it's a working op-ed you're working on. It's called When the War is an End in Itself, Fentanyl and U.S. Military Intervention in Mexico. For starters, what do you mean by uh, when, when war is an end in itself? Well, I, I think the, the point is that the, the idea of the conflict is, um, is that it's a political instrument to, to mobilize support for, uh, for, for Republicans. Again, mobilizing people's you know, rage and grief and anger over the loss of, of their loved ones and, uh, and giving them a target. You know, it's a mythical target, but it's a target nonetheless. And, uh, and so you know, this is a form of political mobilization uh, against uh, um, uh, targets that, uh, that are misunderstood and misconstrued. We've, you've already kind of talked about how attacking the quote unquote cartels is sort of a slippery situation. Um, some other research that you've been doing that you shared with me goes into um, the very complicated situation around fentanyl. It's a synthetic drug that could be produced using legal substances if you can get a hold of them. And if you can't get a hold of them, there are pre-precursors which you can get a hold of. And with the right chemist, you can make the precursor. So in other words, it's a way different situation these days than it was when you were growing poppies or you were growing uh, marijuana and you had huge outdoor farms and it had to be shipped in huge trucks. Nowadays, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, somebody who has the right knowledge in a fairly simple setup in a private place can create vast amounts of a seriously deadly drug, fentanyl. Well, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, and so um, you know, it's different than synthetic drugs are different, right? And the, and the two synthetic drugs that are really important are methamphetamines and fentanyl. Uh, now, the distinction to draw between methamphetamines and fentanyl is that uh, the Mexican drug trafficking organizations um, they they have the capacity autonomously to produce all the methamphetamine they want, they, but they don't really have this autonomous production capacity. They haven't uh, gotten there yet with fentanyl. Right. Yes. So the concern is is that they could get there, and that would make it that it, it even easier for those people to make the fentanyl. Right. Yeah, that would make the pro- the problem even more uh, intractable in terms of you know addressing the, the the problem of drugs from the supply side. That would make it much harder. When it comes to trying to because it's a, a, you can make it in a small place where you don't have a huge field, you know, and the, the situation is different. Um, from your perspective, does that mean that you know is using special forces or the U.S. military uh, viable in the same way it might have been in decades past? Um, well, no, the United States uh, and Mexico launched a, a, a major effort in the, in the 1970s called Operation Condor, uh, which was focused on, you know, destroying poppy fields and destroying uh, marijuana fields. And, and that was supply interdiction, right? And so, you know, Mike, as you're suggesting, the supply interdiction is a much more complicated thing when it comes to synthetic drugs. Can you explain how, and one of the things you sent me I was reading up on, um, and I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but it was interesting, the passage of NAFTA in the mid-90s, um, in a sense, sort of greased the wheels for commerce between the United States and, uh, and Mexico. Um, and when you're trying to check stuff coming across the border to see if it has illegal stuff in it, that slows things down. So the two were kind of at odds. You know, we want to increase trade. But we want to try to reduce 
importing illicit chemicals, but those two forces were fighting against each other. Is that an accurate characterization? Yeah, I, I think it is. So that we establish economic integration and uh, and that opens up the, the ports of entry and just in terms of the the sheer volume of commerce that's going through these points of entry and the and, and the commerce has to move at a certain velocity in order for these uh, patterns of uh, of U.S. foreign investment in, in Mexico to um, uh, to be economically viable. Using the military in the quote-unquote war on drugs does have precedent in some instances. Is that correct? Maybe not in Mexico, but... In Afghanistan. Okay. So, so um, this is not a completely novel idea to say that we're going to use U.S. special forces to try to stem the flow of fentanyl. That's mm-hmm. not unprecedented, right? Yeah. Okay, because I wasn't sure. You know, I watched the presidential debate and it seemed kind of, you know, we can't all be historians, I guess is the point. (laughs) Um, Has President uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador uh, responded to this recent round of rhetoric when it comes to military use in Mexico? Yeah, you know, Obrador says, you know, Mexico is a sovereign country and and we, uh, you know, we're going to insist on maintaining our own sort of sovereign integrity and, and autonomy. Uh, Lopez Obrador has been um, reluctant to cooperate as much as other uh, previous Mexican presidents in the U.S. war on drugs because he suggests that, um, you know, cooperating with uh, the U.S. In, in this sort of war on drugs has uh, has, has resulted in um, – and widespread deaths in Mexico. I, one of the interesting things, if one, one looks at, for example, uh, the, the murder rate in, in Mexico uh, from, from 1990 to 2006, this is in the period immediately preceding when uh, the Mexican president, Felipe Calderón, uh, mobilizes the, 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 the Mexican military to, uh, to begin to attack uh, drug cartels, or at least that's the that's what cart, that's what that was called their own sort of account of of, of the war on drugs. But the, the the Mexican murder rate declined from nineteen murders per every hundred thousand people down to about nine murders per every hundred thousand people between nineteen ninety and two thousand six, and then after two thousand six, uh, it tripled to about twenty six murders for every hundred thousand people. And so you know. AMLO looks at this and says, well, you know, the war on drugs has turned Mexico into a cemetery. So when he took office, he kind of took a hands-off approach, didn't he? Well, not a hands-off approach. Um, I mean, AMLO has been, you know, focused well, on— Well, he, he's, he's redirected his resources in a different direction in terms yeah, of— okay, right, Yeah, right, right. Um, so, I mean, with regard to the, the, the United States and, for example, the Drug Enforcement Agency, right, uh, he said to the Drug Enforcement Agency that— uh, USDE agents cannot operate with uh, immunity in Mexico. We're only going to hand out so many visas uh, for these DEA agents, and uh, and and we're going to keep much closer, you know, account of what the DEA agents are doing while they're in Mexico. So he's been putting limits on um, on the way in which the United States is, has, you know, used its. Uh, um, it's drug enforcement sort of capabilities inside of Mexico. Um, earlier when we were talking about sort of the, the early rise of the quote-unquote cartels and you said that they were um, integrated with the government in some ways, if not directly, um, is that still the case today? Is it still a complicated can of worms where there's lots of overlap or, or is it not as clear-cut as it maybe once was? 
Well, um, I think it's still the case that the cartels f- function in many instances as paramilitary forces um, that do the work of the government and that do the work of um, essentially the the economic elite in Mexico. So. Now, during the war on drugs, right, from 2016 to 2018, uh, there was a lot of economic dislocation. Um, you know, people uh, were attacked who lived in resource-rich areas uh, so, that, uh, so that these resource-rich areas would become progressively more depopulated. Uh, and so that would be easier then uh, for foreign uh, firms uh, to um, to engage in you know large scale extractive projects that that you know would ha- that that would damage the local environment, but there would be very few people there uh, to resist as a result of uh, of the harassment that 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 was meted out um, by these sort of. Uh, paramilitary groups that were aligned with the uh, with the narco trafficking groups, and so you know, there's still a sense in which um, organized crime is a kind of instrument of the state in terms of um, in terms of you know clearing the field for uh, for foreign direct investment and in, in hydrocarbons and minerals. Uh, uh, for example, the LeBaron family, the the Mormon family in 2000. Um, uh, 19 in Mexico, um, um, uh, several members of the family were were, were killed in a shootout uh, between um, different members of, of organized crime, and uh, and that that prompted uh, President Trump at the time uh, to consider the use of military force uh, against the cartels. But um, this had uh, this had this was this was based upon on, on natural resources that the LeBarons are. Um, a large Mormon clan um, that that live in um, northern Chihuahua and uh, and and the land they occupy uh, is rich with lithium reserves. So there's always more to the story, I guess, is the point. Yeah, there. yeah. I mean, you know, it, it comes down to uh, natural resources and uh, and the um, the the extraction of natural resources. You mentioned that you you say that the. Um the use of the rhetoric about using the military in Mexico by Republican presidential candidates is uh, being used as sort of a political tool to generate support because so many people have been killed uh, by drugs here in this country or have died by using drugs in this country. Do you think as a person who follows politics that that's something that would be enacted on or do you think that is rhetoric and not it's going to be actionable if, say, Governor DeSantis became president? Um. I imagine it would be acted upon. You do think so, right? Because I think that's part of the the goal um, is to have. Uh, so you don't think it's just bluster? You think that they would actually do it? Yeah. What do you think the response would be from the Mexican government? Because it sounds like they wouldn't be doing it with the permission of the Mexican government. Or am I wrong there? Well, um, I think that uh, you know it depends on who the Mexican president is. That. Uh, you know, if the political right wins in Mexico, the United States would have better partners in terms of, you know, the, the policies that the United States would like to follow in Mexico. And if the if the political left wins again, the, the um, AMLO's successor, this uh, um, the now the Morena candidate Claudia Sheinbaum, um, the, the government of Mexico would be considerably less receptive. 
Um, that's a perfect segue. Um, I wanted to get to Mexico's next election before we wrapped up. Um, next year, Mexico will have an election that has two primary nominees that are female. Mexico's never had a female president. Um, can you tell us, you know, a little bit about each of them and how, you know, is this a surprise to you that Mexico could have a female president? It is kind of surprising. Um, but the, uh, there it is. Uh, so Exogito um, Galvez is uh, uh, it's a woman of uh, indigenous ancestry um, who grew up in a, um, in a fairly hard scrabble household, uh, um, went to um, university in Mexico, got an engineering degree, uh, became an entrepreneur, and then entered you know, politics as part of the as part of the political, uh, as the PAN, the Partido Acción Nacional. That's the, um, that's the Catholic, uh, basically the Catholic political party on, on the right in Mexico. Um, but uh, so, so Galvez, you know, has these um, sort of, you know, she doesn't come across as, as, as an elite. Um, and so, you know, she is, uh, um, I think she, for those reasons, uh, she, she, she's become the, the nominee for the PAN and the PRI and the, and the PRD. It's a, uh, the other parties outside of Morena have formed a kind of opposition coalition. And the other one you mentioned, her name is Claudia Scheinbaum. Yeah, Claudia Scheinbaum. And, uh, and she has a PhD uh, uh, in physics from, um, from Berkeley. Um, she was part of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change. Uh, she worked on that, uh, and then she went into uh, politics, uh, becoming part of Morena, uh, became the mayor of Mexico City, has been the mayor of Mexico City. Uh, for the last five years, uh, and then she, you know, in terms of the the competition between you know the various sort of uh, party leaders in Morena, she she's the one that that prevailed in the sort of internal polling that was done uh, with Morena. Do you have a sense of what the uh, the national polling is between the two right now? Is is there a clear cut leader, or are we too far out for for Mexican politics to say that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that the Morena candidate is is ahead, and uh, from what I see, I think that, that Galvez has um, has has cut into that lead somewhat, um, and so you know she she represents I think that the best alternative uh, for, for for the opposition, but uh, um, but. But uh, AMLO is still very popular, and a lot of his popularity is going to transfer onto Scheinbaum, and that makes Scheinbaum um, the, the front runner. Uh, last question. How long have you been – or two questions. How long have you been studying Mexican politics and culture? Like your whole career, right? Yeah, I did my dissertation research in Mexico in, in the 1980s, and uh, so I wrote my dissertation, and then I you know, kind of – Really started to to reengage uh, with Mexico over the last five to six years, uh, during the time when I've been coming to WGCU to do these interviews. Is now a, a, a an outlier time in Mexican politics and culture, or is this just another part of the continuum? Because I feel like right now we're in an outlier time in the United States, unless this is the new normal. But is that the case in Mexico or not? Well, I mean, the the norm in Mexico for the 20th century was the rule of the pre, right? The the official party of the of the revolution that they've ruled from 1928, until which are part 2000. of the coalition behind Galvez, right? Okay, right. just to, yeah. for listeners, just to be that's clear, right. that's okay. That's right. That's right. So in Mexico, you've had the war on drugs, right? You've had um, 
um, you know, three different kind of post pre uh, administrations, two from the pond and then another pre um, that, that brings us up to 2018. And, uh, and, and all of these presidential administrations have been very pro-American, very pro-free trade, very pro-NAFTA, uh, and very willing to fight the war on drugs. And now in Mexico, there's this sort of countercurrent that's emerged with Morena. And it looks set to continue as we move from the AMLO uh, sexenio, the, the AMLO presidential term, uh, to uh, to possibly, likely, Claudia Scheinbaum. Well, interesting. Well, thanks for coming in and trying to squeeze this kind of conversation into just 25 minutes, but <laughs> that's all the time we have. Okay. Uh, Dr. Rick Coughlin is an associate professor of political science at Florida Gulf Coast University. Thanks for coming in and trying to help us with some context on this increasingly complex situation. All right. Thanks, Mike. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you find podcasts. And a bit of cross-promotion, we're going to be recording an episode of our show, Three Song Stories, live on stage in the Folds Theater at the Alliance for the Arts in Fort Myers on Saturday evening. That's this Saturday, the 16th. If you're interested in learning more, just go to wgcu.org events. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today was Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.